You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Not long ago, I went out of my apartment for the first time in several weeks when I had been sick with COVID-19. It was my first trip outside. Everything felt strange. The air just blowing on my face felt odd and uncanny. Storefronts, which had seemed so normal, which I had passed all the time, felt bizarre. Who buys furs in the 21st century? Why are there four dog spas on my block, seven martial arts studios. What war were people preparing for that they needed such well-groomed dogs and well-honed martial arts skills? Anyway, not far from home, I passed an old Japanese restaurant I used to go to. And as I was looking in the doorway at the darkness, a phrase jumped out at me. And I was so surprised by the phrase, I wasn't sure I was actually seeing it. I looked again and it said, go home, dirty Japs. I thought, this is extremely bizarre. Of course, there's been a lot of negativity in the air about anyone in this country who isn't basically a white American male since Trump has been elected. And it occurred to me reading that slur that someone possibly listening to him braying on about the coronavirus as the Chinese virus, something his advisors, the commentariat, Virtually everyone that shouts in this country shouted back at him that it's not appropriate to say that it's not even accurate, that no viruses have a nationality. But he said it anyway to play to his base, who love to categorize things as being of and from a certain people that they can then declare as subhuman. But I could see how someone listening to that over and over and getting riled up at it might be so stupid as to make the comparison that Japs should go home too, quote-unquote, which was a phrase you sometimes heard during World War II leading up to the internment by the U.S. government of over 100,000 Japanese U.S. citizens and residents of the United States, one of the darkest and grimmest moments of uh, American civil liberties, uh, of which there are many dark ones. Trump, since being elected, has spent his bully pulpit spewing out these spurs. He's called Mexicans rapists when a white nationalist drove over and killed a woman during a white nationalist rally in Charlottesville. He said there are good people on both sides of this protest. He's called women pigs. Uh, He's called any country... um, that doesn't basically have the same resources as America, a shithole country. Uh, 
And so th since his election, there has been a giant uptick in racialized hate crimes. There's been a concerted effort by the U.S. government to make it difficult or near impossible for um, legal immigration from various parts of the world, but especially Muslim countries, to become impossible. And they've also demonized the Trump administration. Anyone trying to cross the border into this country, legally or illegally, um, to make a better life. So in that context, go home, dirty Japs, uh, with a tiny bit of reflection made not just sense, it made a creepy kind of sense. I turned the corner and walked up Broadway and there I encountered three or four more editions of this kind of hideous scrawl. And it made me think that this is the moment we're living through. Uh, this 21st century uh, irreality that has been produced not just by the information technology we use, but by the way that this current president has used this technology and taken advantage of the way that foreign powers, with this, especially Russia, have intervened in the U.S. election to use internet technology to produce an angry, destabilized, divided um, electorate which is not to say that the electorate wasn't divided already, it was hugely divided. Um, but it is even more so in these times. And now the streets of New York, which I've lived in for 24 years, are beginning to resemble the streets I partly, briefly grew up on in the 1970s when New York was caked with graffiti. Uh, subway cars were like rolling art projects, um, only they were also um, very sad. There were people sleeping, homeless people. Um, they were slightly unsafe uh, because crime was out of control in the city. The city was broke, um, bankrupt. The city had been abandoned by the federal government, much to some degree as it is right now. And so to walk around New York is to feel time tilting and turning backwards to the moment that we're in right now. Another reason why that feeling is coming back, that sort of timeless sense of entropy and decay and of a precariousness and of a feeling of hopelessness in which these racialized hatreds uh, have greater visibility, the way that they're being chimneyed by actors in the federal government, the president, and people on Twitters. Of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic that uh, very p few people in this country um, quite grasp. Uh, I think it's true of the, w the world, too, as I am speaking. More than 80,000 Americans have died, 200,000 people plus around the world. There have been a million and a half cases here, and it's been a, it's been a clinic in federal mismanagement. It's, 
with President with sinking poll numbers has seized upon the opportunity to speak in public for two plus hours a day and to essentially lie about what has been happening. Um, his, his administration has just completely abandoned their, uh, their role of pastoral care for the country. Um, they've done virtually nothing to help the states uh, financially to get masks, to get equipment. In fact, in some cases, they've undercut these states. Uh, and so there's a feeling here of, of chaos. Just yesterday, Trump told his 20,000th lie since being in office. And that number is so large as to mean almost meaningless. Uh, because how can you tell 20,000 lies? If I told one right now, one a minute, how long would that take me to, to get, you would still be listening to me in several days, maybe. Anyway, all this means that right now, as people are staying home because they have to, they're indoors watching hours and hours of television and news, binging on serials that they haven't yet caught up on. Because what else do you do with this much time? It's very difficult to think that much. A lot of people are watching television. Um, and one of the shows that's fallen right into this moment is uh, the adaptation by David Simon and Ed Burns of Philip Roth's 2004 novel, The Plot Against America, which is a kind of trailing fourth book in the quartet of his historical novels that unfolded um, during the 1990s, or he published during the 1990s, which include I Married a Communist, which is a thrilling and slightly terrifying novel about the McCarthy years, uh, The Human Stain, which is a, a novel about a, a man who has um, been passing as a, as a white professor when in fact he's uh, partly African and American, and who in the middle of this has a sexual harassment scandal um, of sorts uh, tackle his career. Um, and American Pastoral, um, which is a novel about the 60s and its aftermath. These novels by Roth um, were published right after uh, he won his second National Book Award for Sabbath Theater in 1995 a novel about desire and death and uh, the sort of endlessness of lust in the male species, uh, a black and hysterical and funny and deeply disturbing novel um, that I think will probably stand as one of his bests. And then in a period of about four years came these three books in which Roth wrote right into the pageant and spectacle the carnival of American history and the way it's been constantly since the beginning of this country seesawing between civil liberties and their exact opposite and the way that outsized figures find themselves both as actors and heroes um, and villains in this, in this time period. The Plot Against America was a kind of trailing book because it didn't come out until 2004 and it was published in the middle of the, I think, the scariest years 
um, for Americans, that, that means I think the scariest years for the rest of the world began in 2002 when the revenge wars begun by Bush um, were in full swing. But by 2004, the Bush administration had taken a lot of executive power and using the high poll numbers began to push through elements of domestic surveillance um, and deeply undemocratic policies uh, across the country that were not just rattling, were terrifying people in this country. And so the plot against America, when it first emerged, was read by many Americans as a parable over life during the Bush years. It's one of the Roth novels um, in which Philip Roth appears as a character and his brother Sandy, uh, set in Newark, where he grew up, Roth did. Um, and it's, it begins in June 1940. Uh, it begins with a fantastic sentence. Fear presides over these memories, a perpetual fear. And it continues, of course, no childhood is without its terrors, yet I wonder if I would have been less frightened as a boy if Lindbergh hadn't been president or if I hadn't been the offspring of Jews. In that first paragraph, Roth boots up a whole alternative history, which was not necessarily that alternative. Um, when he was interviewed in 2004 um, about the plot against America and asked um, directly, as I did when I interviewed him at that time, is this a book about the Bush years? He said, no. No, the, the germ for this novel came out of reading Arthur Schlesinger Jr.'s um, diaries. And uh, Schlesinger Jr. was a historian and a sometime um, government employee um, in the circle of the Kennedys, among other presidents. And in a, in a passing note, Lindbergh noted, uh, sorry, Schlesinger noted that uh, some Republicans wanted Lindbergh, who was then an aviation hero for having done the first solo crossing of the Atlantic in a special made plane. It took him, I think, 33 and a half hours. The plane, of course, was called the Spirit of St. Louis. Uh, and Lindbergh had a sort of rising profile among people that saw symbolic value in that activity. Um, but he was also a pretty um, avowed anti-Semite. And uh, some Republicans, Schlesinger Jr. noted, wanted Lindbergh to run and challenge the then very popular uh, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, and, you know, Roosevelt was, was many things, but um, he was uh, instrumental in some ways to the United States surviving those years of the Depression, and he built the welfare state, um, which is now coming under great assault um, in the last two decades uh, by, the, by the right. Um, the, the goal is to dismantle all forms of government welfare for citizenry. In any event, um, that's the germ of Roth's novel, um, and he just imagines what would happen. What would have happened had Lindbergh been elected? One other thing that Roth uh, spoke about um, in that time when he was speaking, when he was asked about the novel, is that he he pointed less towards 
Bush and more towards Sinclair Lewis, who had done a similar thing. Um, Sinclair Lewis, the Minnesota-born um, American novelist, Nobel Prize winner, who in the 1920s, I think, um, firmly established uh, an, a domestic American realistic tradition in the novel. Like Roth in the 90s, uh, the 1920s, um, Sinclair Lewis exploded uh, with five, um, sure, classics, uh, among other books. Uh, 1920 he chronicled the peculiar and slightly dangerous provincialism of small-town American middle-class life with Main Street. Uh, 1922, he published Babbitt, uh, a kind of satire of the boosterism of American small business and its religion of capitalism. In 1925, he published Aerosmith, the tale of an idealistic doctor and the kinds of things that man has to deal with um, in a country still amassing its medical infrastructure. And in 1927, he published Elmer Gantry, a novel about the hypocrisies of the uh, evangelical right, which even then was becoming a power. Those were his decades, and he, uh, to put it in perspective, in, in those times, he sold two million copies of, of Main Street, um, which even today would have been a, uh, a massive best-selling sale. I mean, consider that Colson Whitehead has sold just a little over a million hardbacks of his novel Underground Railroad. Um, in the early 1930s, Sinclair Lewis's career kind of started to, to drop off. He was still writing novels and, and publishing essays and things. Um, but his, his focus had kind of gone elsewhere, and in, in part because his, his wife, the, the great reporter Dorothy Thompson, was, was stationed abroad. Um, was and was reporting on the rise of fascism in Europe, and in particular in, in, in Nazi Germany, um, so much so that she was eventually kicked out of the country um, in 1934. And in the biography of Sinclair Lewis, you can read about how worried the two of them were about the rise of fascism, um, not just in, in Europe, but in America. Um, there, there were elements within America in the 1930s that uh, anti-Semitism, anti the, the sort of constant um, boiling racism that um, that churned up from the South and elsewhere, the, the sort of legacy of, of, a, of a system that taught Americans that something like race was an actual thing. In his great book, Bunk, Kevin Young, the poet and poetry New Yorker of, the, of um, poetry editor of the New Yorker, writes about how Often Americans are willing to believe um, in hoaxes um, because they want them to be true. And the greatest hoax of all, he said, is the is the idea of race. This idea that um, you know people are fundamentally different uh, based on their skin color, um, and that race, you know, is is basically a fake thing pretending to be real. He he writes. In any event. Um, Sinclair Lewis in the, in the 30s was so agitated by this, he, he finally um, sat down and very quickly wrote a book, and, uh, specifically because Huey Long, the Louis, governor of Louisiana, who was really trying to fight um, many of the changes uh, in federal policy that um, basically 
made it harder for states to enact racist policies. Uh, he was threatening to run for president. And so in four or five months, Sinclair Lewis um, banged out this novel, It Can't Happen Here, um, in which he imagines a um, demagogic um, Republican candidate, a sort of showman, um, winning election and, and toppling Roosevelt, um, basically with the promise that um, he will give every citizen $5,000, that he'll return the country to the way it was. Um, and very quickly upon getting elected, he consolidates um, executive power. He ennobles a sort of set of um, shock troops who um, go around the country scaring anyone who's, who's not on his side. And these people are called the Minutemen, the shock troops. Um, he puts together a cabinet of corrupt business leaders, so corrupt um, they begin to be called corpos, corporatists, because they basically merge state and corporate power. And uh, many of members of the media, including Dormus Jessup, who was one of the main characters, is a Vermont uh, newspaper editorial writer and editor, essentially almost have to go underground. And the small networks of resistance begin to rise up. Um, there's a, a new underground railroad ferrying people into Canada um, as this kind of out-of-control administration uh, tramples left and right over civil rights and uh, begins to, to enact the kind of policies that um, were constantly being suggested in the 1930s. And to put this in perspective, there, there was a, a Nazi plot to try to infiltrate America, um, especially... <laughs> Hollywood, um, Hitler, of course, sent a, a, a consul to um, Los Angeles in the 1930s with the specific instruction of uh, preventing Hollywood from making any anti-Nazi films. Um, and one of the films they actually eventually um, successfully prevented being made was um, It Can't Happen Here, <laughs> uh, which was bought by MGM but eventually shelved. Um, the, the man who was sent to... Um, uh, work in, in Los Angeles um, was recently found by the historian Stephen Ross to have actually be work to have actually been working against um, Nazi interests uh, in in the U.S. Um, and he was then later sent um, to Italy, where he sort of orchestrated and uh, the Nazis surrender um, after the end of World War II, and he went on to the Nuremberg trials. Um, Anyway, in, in that book um, by Stephen Ross, the historian of Jewish history, um, he, he discovers that, um, that there, was, there were Nazi um, infiltrators all throughout Los Angeles and the sheriff's department um, trying to get into uh, Hollywood, of course. Um, and he describes the, the efforts of a man named Leon Lewis, who was one of the founders of the Anti-Defamation League, um, to create his own spy force to, to infiltrate the Nazis in turn and to report on their movements. And, and it was a successful effort. Um, so the, the, the kinds of things that Lewis was describing in 1935, the year it can't, it can't happen here, um, was published. Um, it was a massive bestseller, of course, and it was turned into a musical, um, which Lewis had no small part in. 
Um, but those kinds of efforts that, that Dormus Jessup in, the, in Sinclair Lewis's novel um, were, the, the, those kind of efforts of resistance were, were happening in, in the 1930s and in small and, and slightly large ways. Um, the U.S., of course, was late to enter World War II. There were a lot of people who didn't want to be involved in the war. Um, in his book, Human Smoke, Nicholson Baker describes uh, the efforts of pacifists and Quakers um, to see a different way to resist Hitler other than, than going to war. And one of the reasons why the U.S. has been such an economic might was, in fact, the lateness of its um, uh, commitment to World War II, to, 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 to fighting on the side of the Allies. Um, Europe was devastated. The rest of the world was, was devastated, whereas the U.S., which had been shipping arms and other things, was engorged by the power of war. Um, there were massive sacrifices, of course. Many American soldiers lost their lives or came home shattered. Um, but the, the myth of this being a good war, of America um, entering and triumphantly saving the bacon of Europe from the Nazis, um, is flawed, to put it mildly. In any event, that's the world that Philip Roth uh, grew up in, in Newark, um, in, the, in, the 19, in the 1940s, uh, as a child, um, which is the America of World War II, of um, this resistance, to some degree, to the idea of going back to war. Uh, the feelings of anti-Semitism and, and the um, voicing of those opinions um, which was no small thing when Hitler was amassing um, a series of death camps, um, which very quickly, thanks to publications in Life magazine and elsewhere, Americans knew about. It wasn't a secret. This was not the kind of thing that um, was a, a great shock uh, after the war. It was known. Um, and in fact, boats of, of Jewish refugees that had left Europe fearing for their lives um, were turned back by Roosevelt's administration. Uh, so right now, in 2020, with uh, a pandemic raging that's you know, killed over 80,000 Americans, um, with a president who is a lot like Lindbergh, who has uh, um, deep and often trumpeted racial um, and ethnic hatreds. Um, he's, he's not just admitted to them, he's, he's campaigned upon them. Um, a president uh, who, like this, the right-wing demagogue who was elected in, in Sinclair Lewis's novel, merges corporate and state power, who invites looting of the government by his closest and nearest and dearest business friends. In um, a time where that is now not just uh, feared, but uh, a reality. When the president has, you know, in, as of January, told 16,240 lies, the Washington Post stopped counting them. Um, Philip Roth's story of the plot against America has a, has a new life, and for good reason. Um, unlike Lewis, uh, Roth's novel is an intimate novel. Um, it begins in the and the, the voice of someone looking back and remembering being a child, uh, which is a far more intimate creation. 
And in the adaptation by David Simon and Ed Burns, um, the, the story is reconceived more broadly as the tale of two families, um, uh, the Finkels and the Levins. Um, and Evelyn Levin, who is played by Winona Ryder, is the uh, is 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 the sort of bridge between um, uh, the Finkel family uh, and what is happening to politics. Um, Evelyn's single and has had a relatively up and down, slightly unhappy life until she meets a, a sort of silver-tongued um, rabbi, Rabbi Bendelsdorf, played by John Turturro, who in the book and in the film is, is accommodating the, the, um, Charles Lindbergh and his policies after he gets elected president, um, running on this campaign of America first. Those are the actual words um, in the book, um, and the actual words that Trump often trumpeted at his rallies. And Evelyn Levin and, and Rabbi Bendelsdorf see this as a kind of opportunity uh, to, to suddenly not just um, secure their own safety, but secure a certain degree of power by working with Lindbergh and the First Lady and uh, Henry Ford, who was um, put into the cabinet as Secretary of State, I believe, and to work with them on policies which are essentially resettling Jewish people all across the United States. Uh, the, in the Finkel family, this, this causes great division. Um, Philip, Phillips, uh, uh, in, the, in the book, in the, um, and in the film, Philip's father uh, is deeply angered by this. Um, his mother is worried. Um, uh, and his brother is en enraptured to some degree by um, Lindbergh and his heroism. Uh, Sandy is sent off to Kentucky and um, to be resettled in a summer program, just like Hitler Youth were recruited and brought into the system of, of Nazi policies and belief, and in some ways then turned on their own parents. The miniseries is just six episodes, and so the, the ratcheting up of uh, Lindbergh's rhetoric to Lindbergh's election, to Lindbergh's policies, to Lindbergh's policies bearing down on the family, to the sudden breaking point within the family as uh, to stay or leave, to go to Canada or to stay, to break ties with Evelyn and the rabbi, um, or to heed their advice and join the uh, resettlement program and go to Kentucky. That happens very rapidly. Um, Roth's book, it's one of his longer books. It's, it's, it's almost 400 pages. Um, and so the the effect of watching the miniseries, which is dense and moving and beautifully shot um, um, and full of uh, commentary from the characters and dialogue that rises up um, memories of our, of our recent time, um, and, and the effect of reading the novel are, are similar but very different. The novel works in the fine-grained texture of memory 
and of childhood, whereas the, the film um, works in the texture of a, of a kind of long and um, terrifying um, moral thriller, if you will. Watching it today, but in these times, you, you have to wonder um, how much uh, Roth had his finger on the future of American politics. Not as much as Tom Wolfe, but to some degree, Roth understood the power of American chicanery and stupidity. And he often commented in the last couple years of his working life where he would do interviews about the shrinking size of the um, readership for the genre in which he worked. And sometimes it was easy to look at that as a kind of carriage maker bemoaning the end of his trade uh, or a form of narcissism even. Um, but I like to think now that um, Roth's been dead a little while and his books are beginning to um, breathe in the way that books do when they step outside of time that he had his finger on the, the way that American historical movements are often pushed from within by actors who inhabited these slightly essential American traits uh, of which one was um, was con, conning. In 2016, Trump was asked about the plot against America. And, um, sorry, in 2016, Roth was asked about the tr plot against America and, and Trump. And Roth said, uh, Lindbergh, despite his Nazi sympathies and racist proclivities, was a great aviator. Uh, Trump is just a con artist. It's worth remembering that this has always been known uh, in, in New York City, that there's no heroism to some degree in Trump's uh, electoral campaign, what he means to the country, um, the sort of show that he puts on. One of the things that was alarming about the plot against America was that it was impossible to disagree with the, if not heroic, then certainly um, brave act of flying a plane across the Atlantic by oneself before that had ever really been done, truly had ever been done. And so you couldn't argue um, in your mind while reading The Plot Against America with uh, Lindbergh's mm, heroism, if you want to call it that. Also in, in real life, um, Lindbergh, his child had been kidnapped in one of the first high-profile kidnappings in American history um, and had been killed. And this, is, this is a true story and this happens, uh, this information is put into the novel very early and that spectacle of Lindbergh's terrible loss um, also leavens people's reactions to what is essentially some pretty unacceptable uh, uses of, of inflammatory rhetoric for a presidential candidate. And in real life, Lindbergh stayed in Europe for so, until 1939, after his child had been abducted and, and, and killed, because the, the paparazzi and the news reports of this were so um, distressing that he, he and his 
surviving family fled the country. And there was some speculation that in that time abroad that he came across and, and did work with, um, or at least sympathized with Nazi ideas. Uh, but in, in Ross's novel, um, this is one thing that um, humanizes Lindbergh, um, that makes it hard to believe that he would uh, say such things that would just destroy families. All of these books, the, the Roth book, The Plot Against America, It, it Can't Happen Here by, by Sinclair Lewis, uh, to some degree, um, night, uh, George Orwell's 1984, they were published into a world in which there was a, a, a terrible degree of chaos. Um, there was a, a huge degree of economic distress. There were many, many, many people out of work. Um, you know, in the 1920s, before the Depression had arrived, more than a million black um, laborers had lost their jobs um, due to, you know, environmental crises um, that grew out of the, the terrible farming methods. And so by the 1930s, there was, there was a lot of anguish. Um, and then the d Depression hit. Uh, so the, the period of, that these novels either hearken to or come out of um, was one of pain and also a debate and ideas as to what the world was. On one side you had fascism and on the other side you had a, a strong and, and growing idea of what government could be and what it could provide for citizens. Uh, Lewis, of course, was deeply involved in the Works Public Administration project that Richard Wright and other American novelists were involved in that uh, produced murals that told stories that uh, went out and retrieved oral histories of Americans, including some of the last surviving um, members of families that had um, been in, in, in bondage, human bondage as slaves in America. Um, in the 1930s, uh, uh, Social Security emerged as a survival mechanism for indigent, indigent Americans. So on the one side you had the fascism that had grown up and out of the, uh, the, the, the Europe and Italy, Germany and elsewhere and, and the kind of um, sympathetic uh, you know uh, Japanese response. And then you had other democracies which believed in the, in the power of raising up all citizens through sharing the wealth, through taxation, through federal policy. And I think one of the reasons why The Plot Against America resonates right now, not just as a miniseries, but as a book, why Sinclair Lewis's novel, uh, It Can't Happen Here, why 1984 and so many other books of that ilk, Hannah Arendt's essays, why these books are coming back to us, The Plague by Albert Camus, is they seem to come from a world in which there is uh, a competing idea system to ideas of, of fascist power, corporate power, um, the great strong man leader. And one of my worries right now as I sign off to you is I wish a similar belief system um, that was fighting those ideas of fascist power in the 1930s. I wish that a belief system 
had as coherent and loud a voice of resistance as it, as it did then. In the plot against America, it comes in the form of this, the voice of Walter Winchell, the actual American commentator and radio host who uh, was so often on the side of the good and the right and protective of all kinds of Americans, not just those who looked a certain way and had a certain color skin or followed a certain religion. And in Roth's novel, he, he, he comes to the fore and something terrible happens. Um, we're in a different time and we, even then, the idea that one man especially can save us is, uh, is problematic, to put it mildly. Uh, I like to think that there's a greater communitarian spirit that, that is out there that we, we saw in this country activated by the midterm elections um, not too long ago that was trying to connect the need for fairer taxation, a, an enlarging idea of citizenship with the need for green policies, um, with the need for representation that looks a lot more like the citizens of this country. And I'll close with a note that I'm reading a, a, a history right now called Bernie's Brooklyn. Now, growing up in the New Deal city shaped Bernie Sanders' politics. It's by Theodore Hamm. And it's a book about um, socialism in America in the early 1940s, during the period in which the plot against America begins. And it, it essentially follows the story of, uh, of Bernie Sanders' growing up in, in Brooklyn in that time when socialism was not an outside idea. It was, it was quite in the mainstream. The mayor of New York City, Fiore, Fiore LaGuardia, who was half Jewish and half Italian and all of five foot two, uh, had begun a series of policies to make New York more open and fair and livable for everyone who was here. He built, you know, scores of parks and uh, on, with Robert Moses, um, who eventually might get a little bit out of control if you've read any bit of Robert Carroll's brilliant thousand-page uh, biography of him and his public works, with Robert Moses as his... Um, as the executor of his policies, he built parks and schools and um, uh, swimming pools and things. And in, in Bernie Sanders' childhood, socialism was a, a legitimate belief system to, because it, it presented an alternative way to, the, um, to adjudicate and share the, the wealth produced by a society that essentially, until that point, was in out-of-control capitalism. And so, walking in my neighborhood, which is in the West 20s in Manhattan, which until very, very recently was, you know, charging $12,000 a month for rent for a tiny shoebox retail store, where there, as I mentioned, were scores of dog spas, where... There were restaurants where it was, you know, $300 a head to get in at minimum to eat 
rare forms of fish which had been caught off the coast of Japan and frozen and flown to this country to, to be eaten on countertops. Um, while meanwhile, on, that, on those very blocks, there were people sleeping, homeless, in a system that was essentially, what I'm saying is, out of control and intolerable because of the realities of inequality it produced, uh, in which there was a president shouting into this system um, that the economy is the most important thing and that people should give up their lives once the pandemic hit in order to save the economy. Um, there has to be another discussion, essentially, of, of what makes us uh, a together, what makes us a kind of group. And the plot against America, watching it, and that small-scale intimacy of its scenes between Philip and his brother Sandy, Philip, who's so worried about what's happening, and Sandy, who's kind of turned on by the power that Lindbergh uh, d demonstrates by his heroism, by being among the right, by giving Sandy the chance to actually be more than Jewish. In those small, intimate scenes, you feel that there's something other than the, quote, nation that means something of value. Um, and that one of the problems of nationalism is how it begins to say that only the nation is a thing of value and the people, families, and small groups are, are less meaningful. And I think one of the challenges coming into this election of 2020 and actually for novelists and writers right now is how to without becoming propagandists, describe those groups, those networks, those systems of interaction which are outside of the overarching rubric of nationhood and tribe, and how they can form a kind of arrow of resistance to the demonic uh, rhetoric and and policies we see at the very top of this country. It's very strange to watch that tension enacted, that debate performed in the middle of a pandemic on something that you could call entertainment. And that's the big question right now is how do we do more than entertain ourselves into the end of democracy? How do we do more than survive what can sometimes feel and slightly grandiose, but not so grandiose when it's snowing one day and 60 degrees the next, and when more than a million and a half people have been struck with a disease pandemic? How to survive something like this with something other than... Um, and watching it all happen. And we have to use our imaginations, I think. Um, come up with better terms. Come up with better ways to tell a story of what a nation is. 
uh, a larger story. And this is one of the really anguishing things about living in America, in particular in 2020, when uh, the best-selling book of the last however many years, probably decades, was Michelle Obama's Becoming. And right now you can watch a documentary about her book tour. And yeah, there's some hagiography. Every policy Obama advocated for wasn't great, and his overreach of executive power produced some of the openings that Trump has gleefully taken uh, as a president. Uh, but watching her go around the United States and talk to half a million people in a, in a month or two as she's promoting and discussing her book, her memoir, you see a much more enlarging story of what a nation can be. You see a much more hopeful story about what a story can be, that a story doesn't have to leave people out. You see a dignified and elegant idea of what a public servant can be. Someone who, yeah, is exceptional and funny and entertaining, but also is just an everyday person and admits that and celebrates that, celebrates her rise from the south side of Chicago to the halls of Princeton and Harvard and the White House and many of the most powerful tables that she puts it in the world. Uh, and there is a, a, an idea, I think, that we don't need to search necessarily so much for the competing posture, the competing way of engaging with Trumpism and fascism in this country. We, we had it. We lived it. And for whatever reason, at a, in 2016, probably with the help of overseas agitation, uh, a, a, a group of Americans rejected that, that vision. It gives me great hope that in actual numbers, fewer of them rejected it than voted for Hillary Clinton. Um, and so it's my hope that after all of this this grinding, disgusting, vandalizing three-plus years in which living in America and going to any section of the Internet feels like seeing those slurs I described, that they, it can be rejected in the fall um, with a free and open election. I know that that sometimes seems far-fetched right now, but if you take away the hope of that, then you take away everything. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotheque.